Um, we'll be in John chapter 3 today. And so uh, I'd like to, again, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word there. As you're turning there, of course, you probably recognize immediately that this is inarguably the most famous verse in all of Scripture that we're about to unpack this morning. And in this short but powerful verse, the gospel of God's grace toward us, his people, is articulated in such a way that even a small child, as they hear this verse, like many of us who first believed years ago even, can understand this verse, can understand the gospel and respond in faith. But it's powerful enough that even those of us who have been believers for some time, like my own self, for much of my own life, can read this verse and yet still just be taken back by a sense of awe and wonder before God as he's seen here in this gospel message of John 3.16. Now, verses 16 through 21 as a whole focus upon the themes of darkness and light and themes like opposition to the gospel and reception of the same. In this passage, we see I believe in many ways, a beautiful tapestry of just brilliant, colorful arrays of gospel truths all throughout this entire passage of especially verse 16 through 21. But in verse 16 specifically, if we see a full, almost rainbowed effect of, of effect of refracted light in the rest of the verses, here in verse 16, we see the brimming white light, so to speak, the very beginning of the light shining, the simple starting point of all that is glorious. See, verse 16 in and of itself is the message of the gospel. And like going through a prism, so to speak, it becomes refracted as we read on in the later verses, as those later verses contain so many implications of that same gospel truth. And so to illustrate, if John 3.16 can be likened to a single, way, a single ray of white light, then the following verses are in many ways like the full spectrum of refracted light on display for us, all designed to move each one of our souls to awe-filled worship. Now, for this reason, though, I want us to focus upon simply just that beginning verse, just that single ray of light, so to speak, rather than looking at the whole tapestry this morning. See, with this in mind, our main idea really, as it comes to us in verse 16 alone, is that the gospel is the demonstration of God's covenantal love toward his own. And so though this verse is so simple, I want us to focus on this this morning. So without further ado, let's go ahead and come now to the reading of God's holy word from John three sixteen, And we'll go ahead and read the following verses as well to get a better sense of context. The word of God in John chapter three says this to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. 
For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, this is the holy, inspired, and authoritative word of God, forever faithful and true and given to us in love. With this in mind, let's go ahead and pray now. Father in heaven, we thank you that truly your word never changes. It is true and so deep. And as such, it tends to our soul in many ways through passages like these that seem easy to understand, easier than others at least but it also speaks and ministers to the very depths of our own souls. It speaks to us, O Lord, in the places where the light of Christ needs to shine and it needs to expose our darkness and our fallenness. And so, Jesus, we ask that as your word is opened and now preached before us, that we would hear this word of you, our God, coming from your own heart through my own mouth as a vessel of yours to our listening ears. Jesus, we pray that as we read these words of life, the words of the gospel pertaining to you, pertaining to the cross, pertaining to resurrection, pertaining to the life that we can have only in you, that we would be people who readily receive and believe these words and find our hope and our consolation in this unchanging, forever faithful and true gospel. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would move within our own hearts with power, that you would guide us to the truth, and that, Father, you would be magnified and glorified in this place. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alike. Amen. Well, friends, John 3.16 itself, again, though a very simple verse, answers for us two distinct and really elementary, but also profound at the same time, questions. These questions, in many ways, are deeply personal. They're life-defining. They're even life-altering. And these questions are simply this. First, how did God love us? And second, why? Why did God love us? Now, I can imagine that I'm not the only person here who has heard John 3.16 specifically, especially just this one verse, my entire life, as long as I can remember. In fact, by a show of hands, who here grew up hearing John 3.16 from even your own childhood? Exactly, most of us here. See, we've seen this verse plastered on bumper stickers and signs to even face paintings I didn't watch the big game last week, but I'd be surprised if there weren't a few people in the stands who didn't have John 3.16 face-painted onto them even, as they usually do. But I venture to say that we as a culture, especially here in America, have become so used to hearing this verse, God so loved the world, that we unintentionally begin to write off the potency of this verse. And we often don't consider how deeply personal it really is. And so for this reason, I want to provide us with a a more literal translation that comes directly from the original Greek language. 
in order to help us hear this verse as though we are hearing it yet again for the very first time. Uh, My friends back home, by the way, uh, know that I love the Greek language. I took several years of it back in college and seminary, and I still try to read it at least once a week. And so I often call this Greeking out amongst my friends. So pardon me as I Greek out in front of you. But this verse, word for word, right from the original Greek, says this quite literally. For in this way, God loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son in order that everyone who believes would never be destroyed but have life eternal. Friends, do you hear how deeply personal that is when we put it that way? Do you hear this pronouncement of life for those in Christ that is so specific to us here in this verse? See, whereas most of our English translations, including the ESV, which I love personally, say something like, for God so loved the world, the first word in the original Greek language is really the word hutos, which can mean so, but it really means literally in this way or in this manner. In other words, this is how something comes about. Now, of course, it's true that God deeply loves us. He does, in fact, so love us as his children. But this first word, hutos, again, in this way, frames the entire rest of the passage for us. See, God didn't just so love us in an emphatic way, as in, I so love you, or I so love my puppy back home who's waiting for me, or I so love Haagen-Dazs ice cream, which, by the way, that is true. I do so love Haagen-Dazs ice cream, (laughs) in case anybody's taking note. (laughs) But rather, when it says that God loved us literally in this way, it speaks to his very heart. It speaks to what alone could possibly move the very heart of our creator and compel him to act on our behalf. This is why 1 John 4, 8, later on in the scripture, tells us that indeed God is love. And though each one of us have broken his heart, each one of us have rebelled against his holiness and his kindness toward us, and each one of us have even attempted to kill him off, with our own words and our own actions alike, all the way back in eternity past, even before he fashioned the world, as Ephesians 1 verse 4 tells us, God, out of love for us, purposefully chose us in Christ, in the beloved one himself, to be his own. Now, for theologians, we often call this doctrine, this teaching, election, In other words, God's choosing of us, his people, not based upon anything that you or I could ever do or ever have done or ever will do, but rather from a place of sheer, lifelong, committed, marriage-like, covenantal love over those whom he is pleased to show the very depths of his grace in Christ. Now, the same love, then, that bursts forth from God's own heart, this same love, then, that chose us in Christ before the world's foundation is the same exact covenantal love that John 3.16 is describing for us. For it was in this way 
that God loved us. Now, we see, of course, here in our verse that it says God so loved the world. And so we have to understand what is being referred to there. See, lest we read this the wrong way, we have to ask ourselves, does God show this same kind of covenantal, this kind of steadfast or loyal love toward everyone equally the same? Well, Scripture is very clear throughout all of Scripture, really, from the Old to New Testament alike, that he doesn't. He doesn't love everyone with the same exact kind of covenantal marriage-like love. The Bible doesn't teach what is known as universalism, that God will save every single person at the last. Rather, the idea that God purchased redemption for his people is what we see throughout Scripture. See, Jesus didn't just die in order to potentially save people. When he went to the cross, he purposefully and he particularly died for each one of the sins of his people. Every one of us whom he foreknew and chose out of love and in love before the world's foundation by name. This is a special choosing kind of love. Now, you might be wondering, of course, in hearing this, well, wait, am I one of those people that Christ has chosen? Am I one of them? And so I want to give you assurance. See, if you have known the love of Christ over you and the gospel of him dying for your sins has led you to a place of real faith in him and real repentance of your sins against him, then you can rest assured that you indeed belong to him. You've been chosen by him. He loved you and he gave himself for you. But just as a husband shows this kind of covenantal and loyal, particular love even, to only his wife and to no other, while remaining loving or friendly, let's say, in a more general way toward others, Christ's love toward his people is the same. We see this expression of covenantal, particular, redeeming love from his own heart later on in the same Gospel of John. In John 10, verse 11, for instance, Jesus said of himself, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the goats. No, for the sheep. That's a very beautiful statement that he makes there for us. See, elsewhere we see in Scripture that Jesus died for his bride. He won her. He died for his people. They belong to him. He died for the lost sheep of Israel in order to gather them in to one herd and one flock. And he died for the chosen ones of God, those whom he loved all the way back in eternity past. See, the nature of Christ's atonement then for sin is so specific in both of its scope and its effect. It is purposeful and it's personal and it's efficacious. See, when Christ died for our sins in our place, the scripture tells us that he actually took upon his own shoulders, like it says in 1 Peter, our sins. He redeemed us by name and once for all time accomplished so great a salvation. And so the grand narrative of scripture as a whole, in fact, is really that of Christ on a singular rescue mission in order to save and deliver to the uttermost those whom he has loved. And in this way, 
for this purpose then, as John 3.16, the Father loved us. How did he love us? He gave his only begotten Son to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue from among the world. And while it is not ours to know exactly who is a part of this number, it is truly our greatest joy to spread the fame of Christ, who is indeed king and ruler over all, and so then evangelize or share the gospel with the entire world with the assurance that all who belong to him will, in fact, be brought into the sheepfold of God's pasture at the last. And so we must evangelize. It's both our duty and our joy. Now, for those of us who have responded already to the gospel in faith, we are now those who then get to boldly declare the mysteries of the gospel, that the Father loved us in such a way so as to send his only Son, the Son who was eternally at the Father's side, begotten him, begotten of him, rather, from before the world's creation, begotten, not made, forever in perfect union with the Father, loved by him, the apple of his eye. But friends, for our sake, the Father was so moved by his love for us that he sent his only Son to redeem us from the darkness of sin and wickedness and eternal condemnation in order to fully atone for our sins by his blood. And so that brings us to the why of our passage. We've seen now how God loved us, but again, why? Why did God love us? In other words, for what eternal purpose did the Father love us? Why would he ever go after us, men and women who had spat in his face, who had ridiculed him, who had denied him with our own words and our own actions alike? Well, friends, it was all to demonstrate his love for his own eternal glory, but also for our own eternal good. Again, the gospel message of John 3.16 tells us this. In this way, God loved the world. How? That he gave his only begotten son. But now why? Why? In order that everyone who believes in him would never be destroyed, but have life eternal. Now, over the past couple of weeks, um, I've begun fundraising for the new Presbyterian church that I pastor uh, down in Lynchburg. It's called Downtown Presbyterian, and we started just a few months ago. And so we're still fairly new, but we're seeing God gather to our own midst several people from our neighborhood specifically. It's been beautiful to see as the gospel is going forth, as we are even walking through the basic fundamental truths of the gospel like this in John 3.16, as we did last week with them. And what's powerful is that we have four already four new slash newer believers even in our midst who have come to saving faith in Christ, who are learning about these same gospel truths and responding in love and in faith and repentance to this simple gospel message. It's been so beautiful to see how God has been gathering this new church together in a place that has become so um, distanced from God. We often call the people 
in downtown Lynchburg out of love, the ones who were downcast and disenfranchised and even deconstructed, as so many of them have walked away from the faith. Many of those that I serve in downtown Lynchburg grew up in the church, but have walked away and have actually denied Christ by their own actions. And out of love for them, the Lord has placed upon our own hearts this desire to go after those who are lost specifically and to share this gospel with them in the hopes that they might hear and believe and be saved. Now, though our mission group itself, downtown Presbyterian, is so small in number, we have about a dozen people at this point, for instance. We've had this desire since the very start of beginning our mission group to be faithful with whatever God entrusts to us for the sake of advancing his kingdom in downtown Lynchburg specifically. And so I've had the joy over the past month or so now of beginning this fundraising process to help raise awareness and even help bring people into our midst who can pray alongside of us and just even encourage our group, even from a distance. And over the past month or so, I've ended up traveling quite a bit, uh, twice North Carolina, once to Birmingham, Alabama, and all over the place, in order to share how the Lord himself has been saving people and bringing men and women to a knowledge of Christ, if even just for the first time. Several of my friends down in Alabama, North Carolina, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and all over, really, have been so moved out of their love for God and for his kingdom of grace as we have seen it advancing that it's been astounding to just see how the Spirit has moved in their own hearts to come alongside us and partner with us in prayer. And recently, one of my good friends, who will remain unnamed, of course, here, was so moved by what the Lord has been doing in our midst in reaching the downcast and the deconstructed and the disenfranchised that he gave to our church a very sizable donation even, just in order to help us continue the good work that God has called us to. See, we recognized immediately that this money that he gave us didn't, of course, belong to us. We had nothing to do in receiving it other than having open hands to receive it. And though the money that he entrusted to us didn't belong to us, it wasn't ours, though we couldn't earn it or deserve it out of love and delight, my good friend sacrificially gave. And so what had once belonged to him, rightfully so, is now applied to our own literal account. Friends, this is the very nature of grace. See, grace sees us in our own lack, in our poverty, in our void, in our nothingness. And it attends us with sustenance and with meaning and with vitality and with purpose. See, what you could never afford or achieve by your own power, grace, capital G, grace, attributes to you. When grace is poured out over you, it becomes, in effect, your own possession, your own inheritance. Like my friend who lovingly gave to our little church plant, the gospel of Christ declares to us that God has credited the very account of our lives, that is, everyone who believes upon Christ with the very grace and righteousness of the Son, Jesus Christ by name. 
And what God accomplishes can never be undone. See, this grace, this righteousness, this holiness, this perfect standing before God, this identification even with God because of the gift of his son can never be revoked or refunded, if you will. Rather, it's entrusted to us. He belongs to us, and we belong to him for all eternity. First John elsewhere says this, And this then is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice, if you will, for our sins. And so in application, if you are in Christ, you are then no longer identified by your sin or your shame or your guilt. Yes, we were once those who walked in darkness. We were once those who were defined by our past sins. We may even wrestle against these temptations to sin, even now as believers, even against our God who loves us. But note this, that our identity itself is not in our sin. Rather, we are in Christ and in Christ alone. This is why John 3.16 says in the Greek, pasha pistuon, or for those who don't know Greek, and that's most of us here, of course, literally says, everyone who believes, everyone who believes in him, Christ, will never perish. Everyone who believes will never perish. Now, this belief in Christ, then, is not just some sort of intellectual assent or some just passing acknowledgement that, yeah, Christ is God. Rather, this belief that The Gospel of John is referring to as an ardent trust, a loyal, lifelong devotion, and a humble, even childlike faith in the shepherd king, the very one who loved us and who gave himself for us. And the direct result, then, is that everyone who trusts in this son will never perish. And that word never is so, so important for us to grasp and take hold of because it's a promise. It's a promise not just of life, but of the fact that we are forever and we will be, come glory, forever freed from the sins that so easily entangle us. See, the word here for not or never here is the strongest word for no in the original language. The word that the ESV translate then, translates then as they will never perish, that word perish is literally the same word we get the name Apollyon in Revelation, or destroyer, quite literally. See, most accurately then, John 3.16 is essentially just declaring and shouting over each one of us, if you are in Christ, you can never and will never be destroyed. So what does it mean then to be destroyed? Specifically, John, the gospel writer here, is talking about the destruction that sin itself brings. And friends, if you're like me, we know that destruction all too well. We feel the corrosive power of sin in this world. And it makes us long for the day when we'll be finally free from sinning. 
But friends, if you are in Christ, your sins, though they may even still tempt you day and night, will never finally triumph over you. They will not have the last laugh. See, the shame that you have carried that makes you want to curl up and hide from God has no power over you. The guilt that you have felt over your sins, past, present, even those yet that you have not yet done, has been once for all time paid in full. And the hurts and the pains that you have endured and suffered even for the kingdom of Christ, for his glory, are all designated and purposed for that final day of healing that we read about at the very tail end of the book of Revelation, where the trees, where the leaves rather, of the tree of life will heal the nations. For the Lamb of God who was slain is the same Lamb who has triumphed over Satan, sin, and death on your behalf. And at the cross of Christ, the death that truly did belong to you because of your sin was fully and finally defeated. At the last, Isaiah 25 tells us, God will swallow up death and wipe those tears that we have shed from our faces. And Psalm 16 tells us that if we are indeed in Christ, even our own body will not see that final corruption for it is purposed to be raised back to life from the dead at the coming of Christ in both power and glory to life eternal. And so, friend, having heard this simple pronouncement of the gospel even this morning, do you know then this simple yet so profound love of the Father over you? where sin has destroyed so much good in your own life and even in the lives of others that you love? Have you seen the redeeming and healing power of God tend to you in the quietness of your own soul? Where innocency has been trampled upon, have you felt God shower you with his every morning new mercies? where joy has been vacuumed away from your own life? Have you known the peace that the Holy Spirit alone can restore as he speaks new life back into your heart by faith? Where intimacy and where love have been betrayed, have you experienced the undying, never-changing, electing love of God that compelled him to give you his only begotten son? If so, then, my encouragement for us then this week is simply this, that we who believe upon Christ are not purposed for destruction, but rather for life eternal. And this life eternal started the very moment that the Holy Spirit applied the saving work of Christ to us, the moment we first believed. See, in every place of our lives that sin has just undone us and shaken us, Christ is indeed able to and willing and in fact will at the last restore us. For life that is eternal is only found in him. Finally, if we know and if we are resting in this love of the Father over us, how can people like you and me 
not then declare such saving grace, such loyal love, and such a praiseworthy gift from above, not just amongst ourselves here at Edgemont ARPC, but how can we not then declare it to those outside of the four walls of the church in the hopes that they too might believe and so be saved from the sure wrath of God that is due our sins and the destruction that sin brings about in their own lives. See, if the gospel is the demonstration of God's love toward us, his own, then our proclamation of this same gospel must result in the demonstration of this love in both word and deed here at Edgemont Presbyterian. And this all starts as we learn to live and rest in the undeserved but forever purposeful and praiseworthy love of God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the matchless majesty of you, our God. The very fact that we are those who are loved by you, that we're known by you, that not even a single hair can fall from our heads without you knowing it altogether, Lord. You know our needs, you know our frailties and our weaknesses. And you know, Lord, the things that seek to undo us and unravel us. The sins, O oh Lord, that have sought to claim us. But we thank you, Lord, that if we are in Christ, we truly are new creations. Behold, the new has come and the old has passed away. And we long for and even await that day when we will be again free from sinning free from the vices of sin, free from the temptations, and free, O oh Lord, from every effect of sin in this life. Jesus, we thank you for claiming us as your own, for making us your prized possession. In spirit, we praise you for effectively calling us and applying the very work of Christ in our hearts so that we might be saved. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you as Lord and Savior, that they would call out to you even here this morning. And Lord, for those of us who have known you for many years even, that you would reassure our hearts before you, that even when our hearts seek to condemn us and shout out against us, he's not worthy, she's not worthy, they can't be loved that you, O Lord, would prove yourself to be greater than our hearts. For indeed you are. And so we praise you for your love and for your grace and your mercy. In Christ's name alone, amen.